welcome to the show, everyone. Today, we are sponsored, as always, by our good friends at Cornbread Hemp. Um, I love Cornbread Hemp. I've been telling you about it uh, for a few weeks now. Absolutely love it. Chuck, how, uh, how are you liking it? Fucking love it. I've been a fan now for over a year. So our good friend Jim Higdon, he's the co-founder of Cornbread Hemp, has been on the show a couple times already. He, First of all, big, big advocate for, for oh my God, what was I going to say? Uh, first of all, big advocate for getting rid of marijuana prohibition in Kentucky. So already like the guy. His company is great. They do full spectrum flower only CBD products that are USDA certified. That's United States Department of Agriculture. You know, they got certified organic there. The gummies, we like the gummies. They've got up to two milligrams of THC, the most THC allowed by federal law. And uh, it's got naturally occurring Delta 9 THC, legal to ship in all 50 states and US territories. So don't worry. If you're in a state that has really arcane bullshit laws like many of us live in, you can still get your cornbread hemp. So one important thing, too, about this is it's not just a great product. It's a great company. They're family-owned and operated out of Louisville, Kentucky, crowdfunded, no corporate cash. And in addition to gummies, you can get things like CBD oil. You can get balm. You can get uh, CBD cream, even. You can even get CBD oil for your pets. Great stuff. And, Callie, we're not just going to serve this up without giving them a discount, are we? Absolutely not. Use the code APODLATCHA when you check out for 25% off your order. Uh, that's incredible. That's a huge discount. Um, so APODLATCHA, A-P-P-O-D-L-A-C-H-I-A. You guys know how to spell it. Um, and enjoy. They are so good. They help both of us wind down at the end of the day, help me with chronic pain. Um, we love them. And uh, when you support them, you're supporting the show. So uh, thanks so much. It is. It's that in the huddle house are some coattail riding motherfuckers. Dad's day. Dad's day. So Father's Day. First of all, Thank you. Welcome back to Apod Latcha. Happy West Virginia Day. West by God. Virginia. Happy West Virginia Day. You decided to celebrate by coming back to the great state. Thank God. Yeah, I did. <laughs> you are so. So for those of you who may not be listening uh, in, in the past, Callie was in Texas working a congressional campaign. Now back home in the great state of West Virginia with her wonderful basset hound Frankie. And and if you're following her on the social meds. Go and check out the video that she posted on Instagram of the first time Frankie saw her. And how long was it? Three months. Oh, my God. It was the cutest fucking video. Just this big, <laughs> goofy basset hound just losing his absolute mind. It was it was adorable. Yeah, he um, I was worried. I was like, oh, I don't know if he'll be that excited to see me. And uh, I needn't have worried. <laughs> it's Father's Day or it was, excuse me, yesterday. How how did you celebrate? How did you celebrate with your dad? Did you get to see him? Well, Frankie's been staying with my parents. And so while I was gone, the thing that I missed most in the world was Frankie. And I know that that sounds like, why didn't you miss your fiance? Why didn't you miss your parents? Well, I could talk to them. I could not talk to Frankie. So I missed Frankie the oh. most. And so I begged my dad. I was like, dad, 
please, 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 please bring me Frankie <laughs> the minute that I get back. Um, but I sold it as dad. Do you want to come and bring Frankie and also spend Father's Day with me? <laughs> Bingo. Nailed it. And and he said, sure. And so uh, my dad drove up with Frank from uh, from Western North Carolina and stayed the night Saturday into Sunday. And we had a really, really nice Father's Day. Um, we watched the F1 race together, which was great. But the best part was actually what I did for him for Father's Day. Before he woke up on Sunday morning, I knew that he didn't want to like go out and do anything. He just wanted to relax. He wanted to chill and hang out with me on Father's Day. So I ordered probably six or seven Cracker Barrel entrees for for like breakfast entrees and set them up on nice. my kitchen table as a Cracker Barrel buffet for my dad. And he woke up and there were blueberry pancakes and hash brown casserole. And there was like uh, all kinds of bacon and eggs and peach cobbler and all kinds of stuff. And he, as any Appalachian father would, almost came to tears over how much <laughs> Cracker Barrel was in front of him. <laughs> I mean, because it's, you don't, Cracker Barrel don't do buffets. No. So that's like entering a whole new realm of incredible right there. Honestly. Yeah. If they listen to the show, maybe you should do that, Cracker Barrel. If there's a Cracker Barrel um, buffet, I'd, be, I'd lose my mind. Because it'll bring grown men to tears. <laughs> um, that's no, the goal. So I, yeah, right. Right. So he he literally was like eating and I was like, is everything all right, dad? And he was like, oh, Kyle, this is just such a blessing. I'm so glad to be able to spend <laughs> some time with you. You got a Cracker Barrel buffet. You got your daughter. You got the dog. Nothing better in the world. I think you want you should win an award for that. I'm just going to throw it out there now. Thank you. It was pretty good. I was pretty proud of that's, it. That's a very good idea, too. Honestly, I might I might steal that. You can, please. It's not patented. Um, as as many folks as want to can steal the Cracker Barrel buffet idea. Although what I will say is, my dad goes to Cracker Barrel almost every weekend, so I don't <laughs> I don't know that it would be that good for him. <laughs> no, I mean that was, that was a brilliant idea. I may steal it. I so I don't know if my dad will listen to this. Hopefully not, because this is in the mail going to him. But I I found this new service that has been a game changer for finding gifts for my dad in particular because he's very hard to buy for because he's just like oh hell you don't have to get me anything and there's this this company called gold belly that that will partner with local restaurants in different parts of the country and ship their food oh that's cool it comes amazing like like we last uh, for christmas this year i got him peg leg porker which is a great barbecue restaurant, my favorite in Nashville. And the the ribs and, and pulled pork came fully cooked. You just warm it up, and you'd think, oh, that probably won't be as good as a restaurant. It was pretty damn close. Like, it's delicious. So I got him. He's a big breakfast guy, too. He likes to make breakfast. I got him a a package of stuff from Loveless Cafe in Nashville, which is one of his favorite breakfast spots there, and that's coming to him this week. That's so nice. That's a really cool service. I had no idea that that was like a thing that existed. Yeah. Um, I'm going to have to look into that because there are definitely, I've lived in a lot of places and there are some restaurants that I miss from places where I've lived formerly that I, I really would love to order some stuff from. Yeah, I check it out and get Memphis barbecue. I've, I've been Ooh. thinking of doing that lately. It's cool. Yeah. Um. Yeah. But yeah, like Father's Day, I didn't get to see my dad, unfortunately. So I did post a picture on 
Twitter, which um, he doesn't follow. That's fine. I tagged it for <laughs> dripped out trade unionists. They did retweet it. It was a big day. And huge. That is really cool. For folks who don't know, that's a big account. Big account. A little bit bigger than ours. And uh, <laughs> and it was funny because it was like pictures from his like one of his first days working at the plant to one of his last days. And it just reminded me of like when I was talking to him about him retiring. And it's like my dad, he is so informal, you know, like whatever. I was like, oh, I was like, when are you retiring? He's like, oh, I'm going to do it. I already did it. And he's like, I was like, what? He's like, yeah, I know. I walked in and said, told him the hell with it. And I walked out and retired. I'm like, <laughs> you sure that's all you did? <laughs> that's incredible. Well, now that it came up, I have to ask you this before we get off the subject and get into the actual show. Uh, I have to f- ask you, where do you fall in the breakfast hierarchy? Because I mean, Bob Evans, it, it's a staple. Where are you with Bob Evans? Oh, Bob Evans can get out the door when it comes to the superiority of breakfasts. Yeah. Like, it's fine. But in my opinion, it, this is this is probably going to be ahead, a hot take. Oh, oh, God. Okay. Waffle House, Cracker Barrel, Bob Evans. I... Totally one million percent fucking with you on that. Okay, absolutely <laughs> awesome. Yeah, like Bob Evans, it's fine. I'll fuck with a sunshine skillet. Sure, I will. I will, and I like Bob Evans. But, yeah, you know, you know, wildfire shit, not that great. Cracker Barrel, way better. And I'll say too, like speaking of dads, my dad always has funny names for things. He calls Bob Evans slobbin Bobs, or <laughs> or just slobs for short. Like he'll be like, "You want to go to slobs?" I'm like. <laughs> My dad does the same thing, and this is so funny that we. I'm glad that he's not the only so, one. So so um, while we we fucking love Waffle House, um, but we used to call. And my dad would say, "Let's go to the Awful House," <laughs> 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 and and like for no reason other than to have a funny name. And so it's very funny that that two of those on that list. He also had one for Cracker Barrel, actually, now that I'm thinking about it. He would just say, well, how about we go on to the crack in the barrel? (laughs) (laughs) So campaign check-in this week, we're we're calling a bit of an audible because the January 6th committee hearings have wrapped. And I think it's important to talk about because not only is it important just in general, there is some, there's certainly a significant Appalachian connection I will just throw out there that one of the former members of the Parkersburg City Council was indicted. Or, ex- no, excuse me, let me rewind, was sentenced. They already indicted, they convicted him. He was sentenced the past uh, week, I believe, to... What did he get? Oh, uh, well, I think he got, like, 30 days in prison, which was... Ah, uh, slap yeah. on the wrist. Well, and in fact, as a way of introducing the subject, let me just read to you a part of the statement here, because I posted it on our Twitter account the other day. Let's see if I can find it. Um, so Eric Barber sentenced to 45 days in prison for participating in the January 6th insurrection, um, which by the way, former member of the Parkersburg city council, Wendy Tuck, I believe is who beat him, a good Democrat and a person who I know from church. So good job, Wendy. She beat awesome an insurrectionist. Awesome job, Wendy. She's, we she's, love Wendy. We do love Wendy. Um, so the judge in the case said, I think the remorse seems genuine. Here's what Eric Barber had to say in an interview after that sentencing. Quote, and, and just remember, this judge said he, he saw remorse, okay? I want, All right. Actually, Kelly, let me set it up like this. I want to see if you sense remorse, okay? Okay, I'm ready. You got your remorse hat on? I Yeah, that's what it says right here. Right, yes, exactly. Invisibly. 
Yeah, invisible. because I am very remorseful for yeah. all of the. I don't know. <laughs> so I was gonna, I was gonna try and get something. No, but you're fine. No. I mean, you are, and that's like you. For so- all the Waffle House talk, there we go. There you go. We 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 landed the plane. So this is what he said. Now remorse meter, it's well tuned for you. Okay, he said, "Quote: Any crimes I committed January sixth pale in comparison to the lifelong criminal enterprise Nancy Pelosi has engaged in during her decades in Congress." Barber continued by say, he said the outcome would have been different had this judge been appointed by former President Donald Trump. Quote, I would have received no jail sentence, he said. Unfortunately, I had an Obama appointee, and as a result, I have to do six weeks in a minimum security facility as a political prisoner. On a scale of one to remorse, where are we? No remorse. On a scale of one to remorse, there's no remorse. Does not register. Does not register. The, the meter the meter's not even registered. For a Geiger counter, it'd be silent right now. Right, yeah. I um I think he's gonna get political prisoner tattooed somewhere on his body, I'm sure. Maybe in prison, who knows? Well, I wanted to share that as a little bit of a connection there um because it sets the table. I'm sure that we all and there's way more examples than just him. But January 6th committee, so you watched some of this, right? Some of the, the hearing. I caught bits and pieces of it. I kind of caught like the broad highlights. What um, what are some important takeaways for our listeners to know? Yeah, so I, I, I watched with like suspense the first one. So I think the first one was the best one. And that one was the one that was in prime time. And... I my first impression when I got to the end was I thought that it was incredibly well done. I really didn't have any any notes for them because it felt like they had made it for a national audience. They had cut together really, really difficult information and distilled it into um, like bite sized pieces. So instead of speaking like a normal hearing they would go to a video that they had pre-made that was one of the January 6th committee's attorneys explaining something like in a timeline or explaining how they had gotten all of this evidence together, which I felt was just way more compelling than had they just, Benny Thompson just gotten up there and just continued to talk and talk and talk. Um, so it was very easy to watch. Um, and I felt like they, um, the, the fact that they consulted with an ABC exec, I thought was to their benefit. Um, so number one, it was super well produced. Number two, um, look, I don't want to pile on to the Liz Cheney love. I certainly do not love Liz Cheney, but I, I Thank do you. think, Thank yeah, you. <laughs> I, I do think that she was an effective messenger in that context. I, I'm, I'm not about any of this talk. Like so many people have been like, do you think she should run for president now? No, of course not. Absolutely not. Fuck she does no. not. She doesn't like people like me. Like she does. She's not. She's not your friend. She's a Cheney for God's sake, people. <laughs> It was not that long ago that George W. Bush was in office. Oh, oh, first of all, you said people like you. Important context to her is that when I believe she was running for Senate at one point, I think it was Senate, might have been her first congressional campaign, her sister, Lynn, Lynn, I think it's Lynn, her sister Lynn is gay, she's lesbian, um, which obviously nothing wrong about that, but not according to Liz Cheney, who... I think still came out against gay marriage and and basically said it in front of her. It was very awful, very, very like 
disgusting shit. So she's yeah, not great. Not good. No, no. Yeah. No, she she's not. And so, like, I, I just want to make that abundantly clear that we are not advocating that she did a good job, but or that she is a good person. But she did do a good job in this context. Yes. I thought that calling uh, calling out Republicans in that soundbite that she did was really effective. Like, that was something that I felt like I noticed throughout. Tonight, I say this to my Republican colleagues who are defending the indefensible. There will come a day when Donald Trump is gone but your dishonor will remain. To defend this peaceful transfer of power has been honored by every American president, except one. So just impressions of the whole event, I felt like it was great. Now, when it comes to the actual information, a lot of people, when I asked them if they were watching, they were like, oh, I already know everything that they're gonna say. Like, I don't need to watch it. Look. Trump is counting on on well-meaning people like us to not be interested in these hearings. And so I think that going through like kind of some of the revelations um, will be really, really good for folks. So if, if you can catch some of the later ones, um, please do. So. Wow. Lots of things that we didn't know. First night, we got new video footage. The Proud Boys let a documentarian come with them because they thought that this was going to be their shining moment. C can you explain who the Proud Boys are? So the Proud Boys are a... a listed hate group. Um, they were the original... Uh, leaders of the Charlottesville rally, um, the Unite the Right rally. And then they were also the first people on the scene um, while Trump was still speaking at the White House ellipse. They were already on their way to the Capitol. And they were the ones who, if you watched the first one, um, the blonde police officer who testified, they were the ones who knocked her unconscious. Um, and that, that was the Proud Boys. So they are a militaristic, very aggressive hate group, um, white supremacists. So they had invited this British documentarian with them who filmed everything. Which is hilarious. Like, so like, funny. Like, I mean, this is obviously very terrible. I don't want to downplay it, but fucking hilarious how incompetent they are yeah yeah because well and they did it because they genuinely thought that this was going to be their day of reckoning uh i'm, I'm <laughs> the documentary guy was like lol okay sure let's 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 see this unfold yeah no he and Cute he was a great witness. enthusiasm uh, yeah, exactly. Um, he was a great witness. He was um, he came across as very uh, nonpartisan, partly because he's British. So I actually think that that was like a happy accident that he was British because like he doesn't have a dog in this fight. Like he's just there to be a documentarian. So all of that footage was like never before seen. And they had cut together this like 11 minute video of start to breach. So like start of the of the the riot into like the very beginning of the breach. And a lot of it was stuff that we had never seen before. And for me, it made me realize just how just how numb to the regular footage that I had been. I'd seen everything. I'd seen the police officers screaming, all of that, you know. And in that moment, when we were all watching that in real time, it was that kind of same, that visceral reaction. It made me sick. It was horrible to watch. Um, 
But as time goes on, you become numb to those things. And so seeing this new footage really hit me hard. Um, And I I imagine that other folks had a similar reaction, but that was really great. Um, And so that first night was, I felt like, really, really great television. Um, And then we can definitely go into the later, some of the later ones, what the, the actual information that's coming out is. But I'd love to hear kind of like, as someone who did just catch snippets of it, what was your impression of of kind of the the hearing experience? Well, first of all, I want to dial back real quick to what you said about Liz Cheney and stuff. I feel the same way about her that I feel about Mike Pence, which is terrible people, not a fan. It is good that they did what they did with respect to, for her being a part of this committee, and for him, I guess, certifying the election, uh, which was, to be clear, for Mike Pence, the absolute bare minimum of what he could have done. But it's good that he did that as opposed to not doing it. With Liz Cheney, it is good that she's doing what she's doing with this, particularly because it's actual political courage in a way, because um, she's going to lose her primary. Like, she's going to lose by a lot, it looks like. So, you know, it's good that she did that. It's not an excuse to look at her with rose-colored glasses for anything else, but it is good that she did that, did this, as opposed to not doing it. That's what I will say. Um, yeah, I think you can absolutely hold both of those thoughts at the same time, and I would encourage folks, like, let's not make these people our heroes. Um, that was, I think, yes. that, you know, they, they, a lot of the committee was saying that Mike Pence is a hero. Well, had Mike Pence not enabled this, you know, he was part of building this riot from from the ground up and the fact that he stopped it right before uh you know it, it went over the edge um the dam broke he just mitigated the damage you know exactly and like that's part of what mike pence wants to try to do right now is salvage his political career and so that's why he's trying to also make himself out to be this you know like this person that saved the day kind of thing what i will say is like it seemed like it was very well produced it seemed like they hit on the very important points it seemed harrowing enough i i think like i don't really know how to feel about it as far as like what the impact is going to be i i don't know that anybody was necessarily going to be persuaded by this that would otherwise not be but i don't know that that was entirely the point i think it was important to get this on the record and i think it was important to make a case to the department of justice about this i was about to say the audience is merrick garland <laughs> yeah the audience is the attorney general of the united states and they're trying to get him to indict the former president which probably should um i think that that will be scary um like i'm not i definitely think that he committed crimes i think he should be indicted but i worry where i think that's probably gonna be the closest to civil war that our country is going to be since the 1800s i agree 100 percent. i think it's going to be a scary time if that happens but you also just can't let people off the hook because why have a justice system you know yeah if you're not going to enforce that and you're going to have you know black people in prison for having a fucking dying bag of weed but this guy tries to overthrow the entire democracy and it's like, uh, blind eye. Yeah, that shouldn't be how it works. So yeah, I, I think that it was an effective thing. And I think like, you know, they had to do it. That's what I'll say. And um, I think it maybe maybe was helpful for people who hadn't been paying attention because I know there was a lot of eyeballs on it. So I think from that perspective, I think it was good. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So let's dive into a couple of the facts that have emerged. Um, so 
Eastman is the attorney that was advising Trump on the idea of Pence sending back the elections to be to be recertified by the states. So that is if when we say Eastman, that is Trump's attorney um, who concocted the whole plan. Yeah, not Eastman Chemical for all the uh, uh, Northeast Tennessee Kings porters out there. Right, right. So. Trump was told on multiple occasions that Eastman's plan was illegal, but he tried it anyway. So this goes back to that classic American question of what did the president know and when did he know it? If you guys are familiar with Watergate, that was the main that was a central question in the Watergate scandal. And I feel like it is coming back uh, to bubble at the surface of American politics right now. So what did the president know and when did he know it? He knew before he made that speech, he knew weeks before that speech, that this idea of sending it back to the states to be recertified and Mike Pence declaring him the winner um, was illegal, but he tried it anyway. Um, Pence had actually, uh, he conferred with one of the folks who, um, is like a, he's like a bastion of, of conservative, of like legal, uh, thought. And this was a guy who was shortlisted for, um, shortlisted for the Supreme Court and told Pence like that this was wrong. So Pence had the he like also knew before and he knew that he was going to do what he did. Um, And so that was really interesting that Trump was going ahead with the plan he knew and Pence knew what he was going to do as well. There was no question in Pence's mind that he was going to do what he did. After all of this goes down, after all of the shit happens, Eastman actually emailed Rudy Giuliani about receiving a presidential pardon after January 6th. Hilarious. He asked. Yeah, he said, I've decided that this is a quote, quote, I have decided that I should be on the pardon list if that's still in the works. Oh, my God. Yeah. Let me just say, you never ask for a pardon if you're not guilty of something. Yeah. You just don't. There's no reason to. Yeah. So that's just absolutely amazing. Um, I love that quote. <laughs> if that, it's still in the works. It's, it's like, like just a funny quote. <laughs> I just can't even. It's These people are like the world's dumbest criminals. Yeah. They're so dumb. They left world's such a paper trail. fucking criminals. Yeah. But at the same time, that's a really smart thing to do. <laughs> that's the dumb part of it, because Trump will give you a pardon. Right. Right. Amazing. So um, the next thing that we did not know before, we thought that Pence had been taken directly to the underground bunker where he had, had remained until the, the mob was gone. But that's actually not what happened Pence was really, really close to the mob. He was 40 feet from the mob of Trump supporters inside the Capitol just after Trump had tweeted about him. The House Select Committee showed on Thursday. So so this is um, where we kind of veer into uh, the committee did a lot of letting the people who were actually rioters tell their own stories. So multiple times throughout the hearing, we saw videotapes of people who were taking their cues from Trump and saying, I'm here because Trump asked me to be here. There was actually somebody who was indicted um, who said Trump has never asked anything of me other than two things, his vote and to be here today. And That testimony is so incredibly powerful because no matter what they say, 
The people who were there said it themselves that Trump had asked them to be there and that this was a premeditated event. Will be wild is the quote. Be there will be wild. So then as we move through the riot, um, we know now that Trump didn't want the riot to stop. The committee revealed testimony during its first hearing that the Trump White House officials um, who said the former president did not want the U.S. Capitol attack to stop angrily re uh, resist that Trump angrily resisted his own advisors who were urging him to call off the rioters and thought his own vice president, quote, deserved to be hanged. <laughs> So what you're saying is this sounds like a guy with very little involvement. Right. Very, very <laughs> right. little. It's wild to me. This whole situation wild to me. Like they had fucking gallows in front of the United States Capitol and you had a mob of people who were literally yelling, hang Mike Pence. But then Republicans in Congress are like, ah, they're just, they're just protesting. I mean, my God, have you seen Antifa? And Portland, Portland, Portland. And so Mike Pence, oh no, they didn't want to hang Mike Pence. They yeah. were just ribbing the guy, just ribbing him. Who hasn't erected a gallow in front of the United States Capitol yeah. before? Come on, come on, you Democrats. But, but let's be real though, like all of these Republicans in Congress, they probably don't believe any of this. They're probably just as wigged out by this as the Democrats, but they have to count out of their constituents who yep. are not, Absolutely. who were at those rallies. We also know now that it's Pence um, who called for help. Trump did not call for help in, they said 187 minutes, he did nothing. So Pence is who um, who said that, the, that uh, they ordered the National Guard, Pence was the one who ordered the National Guard troops to respond to the violence. Um, but he was told by, White, by the White House to say that it was Trump. Oh, yes, of course, of course, Mike Pence. He's just a cuck for all of this stuff. That that checks yeah. out for him. That checks out for him, yeah. So, right. So not a patriot. Yeah, again, not a hero. No. Not a hero. <laughs> Definitely not. You, you said your remorse meter was off. My American patriot meter, very, very off. Not a patriot, though, from my understanding, I guess. Yeah, yeah. So this is all... This is a lot of information to take in. Um, we know now that that in the actual interviews where they were under oath that Trump's team and his family turned against him. They laughed at him. Bill Barr, they played a video of Bill Barr laughing, calling um, the claims vo of, of voter fraud bullshit. Um, Ivanka Trump said that she accepted what Bill Barr said. Um, so there's that. And then um, one of like the things that really came out, and, and I find this really interesting for lots of campaigns, um, and this is the one I think that has the most direct implications for the everyday voter. You've probably all gotten emails at some point that says contribute to our reelection fund or contribute to our um, our one that I that I just saw was our recount fund. All of this stuff that, that kind of is a way to get fundraising out. So they revealed that. Trump's lies um, had turned into millions of dollars. So they were raking in cash because of what he was saying. Um, and he had he had actually in these fundraising emails where the cash was flowing in, called it a uh, an election or a, like an election defense fund. And no such fund existed. Um, usually it doesn't. It just goes into a campaign account anyway. Those funds are just like 
oh, here's a fundraising tool. And it's like minor fraud usually. And so now campaigns are probably going to stop doing that um, because it's now had these huge implications because like $200,000 of that defense fund went to like Trump hotels. Of course it did. And like, of course it did. Yeah. So lots of interesting um, repercussions for campaign finance. I know this is going along, but I really um, I wanted to share with everybody just some of those things that I feel like um, have really broad impacts to the next year or so of our lives, even into 2024. It's all a grift. That's what it boils down to. It's all a grift. Yeah. Like, and it's dangerous. It's all f- really dangerous grift, but it's a grift. You know, the whole raising money for Trump hotels, that's, that's all it's ever been. The dude's a grifter. It's all a grift. Yeah. And that's, and, and unfortunately, a lot of the country has been duped by it. And it's sad. It's really fucking sad. What do we make of this? Where do we go from here? So the committee still has a couple more hearings to go this month. Um, I think there's nothing that like the everyday person can do right now other than keep the conversation going. Um, continue to talk about this. Uh, share share the videos, share clips with your family that may need it. Um, that's something that I think is really challenging that we have to ask ourselves, you know, how much responsibility does the average American have in protecting our democracy? I'm asking myself that question. And my answer to that is as much responsibility as I can take on is what I need to have over this. And so making sure that we put the segment in this podcast, that we tweet about this. I feel like the everyday person should do the same because it's only going to be when everyday people continue to keep the conversation going that Merrick Garland is going to take action on this. As much as we'd like to believe that the judiciary and that the uh, Department of Defense and all of these kind of supposedly impartial bodies are impartial, they're not. They are heavily influenced by public opinion and public conversation. And if we can help shift the tide of public opinion to indict rather than do nothing, then we should do that to protect our democracy. So that's what I think we should take away from this. Continue to watch, continue to share, talk to the people, have to the people who need it and have difficult conversations. Especially if you live in Pennsylvania. Because, and here's a takeaway for you, here's the Appalachian hook that we'll end this on, which is Doug Mastriano is running for governor in the great state of Pennsylvania, excuse me, Commonwealth, Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, apologies, and he is a big time election denier, and so if any of this can be persuasive to potential Republican voters that you may have in your family, I would encourage it because this guy is extremely dangerous, and he can appoint the Secretary of State, we've talked about it before on this show, and throw out entire election results and not even needing it to go to the, before the United States Senate. So it's very important to keep the conversation going, and I'm glad that you, uh, that you walked us through it. This has been helpful, because I did not watch it, so I didn't watch much of it. Yeah, thanks. I, I'm really glad that, that we could have this discussion. And if y'all have any questions or if you'd like to see something from us on this beyond the episode, if you'd like us to try and tie some more of this to Appalachia, um, let us know because we, we'd love to help create any resources that might be helpful for you um, in talking to those family members. Exactly. That's what we're here to do. 
All right. Well, before we get into the meat of the episode, let's talk about Patreon real quick. We don't have any new ones this week, but Callie will write you a limerick if you join. You can join for as little as a dollar a month, or you can look at our tiers and see which one fits you best. The reason why we promote this and why we do it is because it helps us finance the show. Patreon's a great platform for us to be able to raise money, as well as creating a unique and awesome community of Appalachia supporters and people who love Appalachia. And so we'd love for you to join. You can go to patreon.com slash Appalachia. You can find the link in the show notes and, and join and help us out. We've got a lot of exclusives. We just finished recording one. We might do another and we've got an entire cryptid bonus series and a lot more. We do live events. And I think that's one of the things that people love the most, but it really just helps us to financially support this show because it costs money to do and we want to keep doing it. So uh, we would love for you to join. And your limericks are great. Yeah, I I would love to write you a limerick. Um, I enjoy doing those, and it helps me get to know our Patreon members because I Google your names. Huh. <laughs> I actually there was there was one that just joined recently um, who I found out is uh, an Appalachian beekeeper, um, and so that is Ooh, pretty cool. That is cool. So yeah, I'd love to learn more about you. Please join. And we're in the middle of a rebranding process. Um, we really want to create an experience on this podcast that is reflective of the energy that exists in our Patreon community and as well as throughout the Appalachian region. And we're also doing more advocacy. We are doing um, some, uh, hoping to do more live events in the coming months. We would love to be able to spend more time making this, not just a podcast, but an entire um uh, an entire operation of good for our region, and we can only do that with your help. Exactly. I, beautiful. I couldn't have said it better myself. So today, part two of our episode from last week, which was a great one, I think, and a good background, the Federalist Society's impact on Appalachia. For a little bit of a recap, the Federalist Society is a right-wing dark money organization that that basically has been influencing the federal courts for decades by propping up judges and putting them in front of Republican lawmakers to confirm and put on the different courts. Last week, we told you a little bit about that organization. This week, we're diving into some of the stuff that they've already done to, I think, severely impact Appalachia in a negative way. I wanted to really quickly give just a little bit of background, not long, about the federal circuit courts, because that's what I chose to kind of focus some of this research on. So a lot of federal judges in Appalachia are in the Federal Society, and their precedent impacts all corners of Appalachia. And so circuit courts, you may have heard like the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals, the First Circuit Court of Appeals, yada, yada. I think that there are 12 total, including the D.C. Circuit, and they're basically regional. So the circuit courts, they're also a step below the United States Supreme Court. So if you appeal from the circuit court, you're appealing to the U.S. Supreme Court. So these have a lot of precedents, um, and they're considered persuasive authority among other circuits, but um, they're broken up by regions, and so the ones that impact Appalachia are the 3rd, 4th, 6th, and 11th. The the 3rd Circuit covers Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and Delaware. 4th covers West Virginia, Virginia, North Carolina, South Carolina. 6th Circuit covers Ohio, Kentucky, Tennessee, Michigan. 11th Circuit covers Florida, Georgia, Alabama. And so ruling in those courts affects and it and becomes um, precedent for that region. So, for example, and a decision at the 11th Circuit, even if it was a decision about Florida, impacts Georgia and Alabama. That's really the 
Seems Very. important. Oh, and it will, because I we're we're gonna get right into that. Actually, that's our first example. So that was the, all the background you need. Callie, you and I, we had a hunch that, that these judges were terrible. Yeah, just a just a little inkling. Little 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 inkling. Now we have the facts to back that up. Oh my gosh, lay it on me. I love facts. You know me. I'm a fact machine. All right, so the first bucket here, voting rights. This is extremely important because, as you know, Republicans, they love, love taking away voting rights. Yeah. Mm-hmm. This first one is in the 11th Circuit, so it impacts Alabama and Georgia. It took place, though, in Florida. Okay, so a couple years ago, Florida enacted some very restrictive voting laws that restricted absentee ballot drop boxes, third-party voter registration groups, and precinct line warming, which essentially means um, groups coming and talking to people in line when they're getting ready to vote. So a Trump-appointed Federalist Society judges at the 11th Circuit, Barbara Lagoa, Andrew Brasher, and Kevin Newsom, overruled a lower court decision that decided there needed to be something called preclearance before Florida enacted these laws. And preclearance, to put it very simply, I won't go into a large explanation, but it's basically having to seek the Department of Justice's approval for any changes relating to voting. It's part of the Voting Rights Act. There's a lot of rules that go into it. But essentially, it brings in an unbiased party to review the changes that you're making to ensure that it's not motivated by race or or other forms of discrimination. And so... The 11th Circuit ruling that they did not have to seek preclearance is a problem because it allows them to make these kinds of laws and have some sort of discriminatory intent as long as the court upholds it. Now, the lower court said that the right to vote and federal votes were under siege in Florida, to which old Ron DeSantis said that this was performative partisanship, which he would know exactly what that means because he engages in it on a daily basis. Takes one to know one. But the important part about this law is when the lower court ruled that there should be preclearance, they relied on an analysis of racism in Florida's history and said that it was, uh, you know, it was an important part of that. And the 11th Circuit said that that was problematic and failed to properly account for what might be called the, quote, presumption of legislative good faith. Callie, do you think this was good faith? Absolutely not. There was no good faith. Damn it. I thought this time (laughs) was the time. Uh, maybe you're just being too harsh, I think. I think. Give him the benefit of the doubt. Oh, yeah. You know me. Just just pretty hard-lined on, on voting rights. <laughs> all right. All right. I guess, of course, I was being sarcastic. This is obviously terrible. Um, I mean, you can just look at it on its face. One thing I did want to point out, though, too, speaking of good faith, bad faith. So I mentioned Barbara Lagoa at the 11th Circuit, one of the Federal Society Trump-appointed judges. Her former job before getting that cushy job was that she was a Florida Supreme Court justice who'd been appointed by, what do you know, Ronald DeSantis. Why did she not recuse herself? Oh, well, accountability is this fleeting fantasy that we used to have at one point. I mean, actually, I is there... Is there a... a I guess I, maybe there's not a precedent for that? I don't know. That feels like... No, 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 it just, it, that feels weird. My guess, and I don't know this for a fact, my guess is that things like that come down to ethics rules, which, while are encouraged, may not necessarily be required, mm. and relies on that thing called good faith, which they really like to push here, but seems to be very lacking. Republicans? 
Federalist Society judges? Yeah, right. It's wild. Well, you know, good faith is not written in the Constitution. And, you know, they're originalists, right? <laughs> that was good. A little, little, little hot take there. So you probably be wondering, what does this mean for Appalachia? This is a voting rights law in Florida. Now, look, precedent is a little... A little murky here just because it deals with Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act. Section 5 was partially invalidated by the Supreme Court a few years back, and this may be somewhat limited to this case, but what this tells us is that these judges can and likely will make rulings like this for places like Georgia and Alabama, whose governors and state legislatures have a well-documented history of passing laws and signing them into law, that restrict voting rights, particularly among black populations, which I think we might even get into later in this show. So this is very troubling because it's a glimpse and it's a peek behind the, the, the curtain of what these judges think and what they believe and how they rule. And so in places like Alabama and Georgia, yeah. this is dangerous. Jeez, what a hot start. <laughs> oh, my God. Folks, it's only going downhill from here. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, boy. Uh, a couple other instances with that same circuit on voting, voter ID laws, a judge wrote a 2-1 decision dismissing a challenge to an Alabama voter ID law, despite the fact that even that judge herself, that Federalist Society judge, she conceded that black voters were twice as likely as white voters to lack voter IDs. What? She even admitted, oh, yeah, no, black people won't. So this is basically like saying, yeah, yeah, this will disproportionately impact black voters. But I don't care about that. That's what she's saying. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, my God, that's infuriating. So this is more of that originalism, textualism shit. Like, in a different case, she actually dissented, arguing that Alabama cannot be sued for violating the Voting Rights Act. What? She's like, oh, well, well in the text of, of the Voting Rights Act, Congress had not made it sufficiently clear that it was exercising its authority to waive states' immunity from suit. It was just wild to me that, like, these people, are, like, exist and they're making laws. Yeah, well, and, and they're saying the quiet part out loud. And we don't—people as involved as you and me didn't know this until we started researching yeah. it. No, it's wild. Like, it's, but it's uh, they're operating out in the public eye. It's crazy. And it's these a lot of these judges, they'll just get you know they'll get through the Senate and they'll pass. Maybe sometimes on a party line vote, sometimes not. But then people will forget about them. And uh, credit to the the organization People for the American Way, who I got a lot of this information from because they've been tracking these judges. Because it's hard for a lay person to do this. They're thick opinions from the courts that go through all this this legal gobbledygook and it's really hard to you know for a layperson to go through and read that and understand it including myself who went to law school and graduated like it's still hard yeah wow and so it's wild um but to continue on these hostile judges towards voting rights um that affects alabama and georgia in particular absentee voting uh a couple other federalist society judges including our friend Ron DeSantis's buddy, Barbara Lagoa, overruled a lower court ruling that said Georgia absentee ballots postmarked by election day but received up to three days later should be counted. They said no, they shouldn't, and this likely disqualified thousands of voters in Georgia. Um, hey, Callie, do you remember uh, any close elections recently that happened in Georgia? <laughs> yeah, I do. And also, as from the campaign side of things, we know that Democratic voters are, are more likely to be absentee and mail ballot voters. So this is so clear, well, well, well. so clear what the intent here was. Wow. And especially with 
very close elections coming up this year. You have a Senate race, you have a governor's race, you have this kind of thing, like thousands of votes disqualifying thousands of voters. That makes the difference in in a close race. One million percent. As somebody who just lost a race by 30 votes. Yeah, exactly. Like 30 votes. Um, And that's going to be that's not just going to be in in. Texas, that's going to be in Georgia. That's going to be in Alabama. That is going to be all throughout Appalachia, especially. I mean, I'm I'm thinking like Fetterman, Ryan, Beasley, all of those folks are going to have precincts that come down to a handful of votes and could come down to like counties being won and lost on just mail in votes. Wow, that's and how is a regular voter supposed to know that? Oh, I'm putting this in the mail on election day, so I should be able to be that I'm good. That's how that's how absentee voting has worked forever, as long as it's postmarked by election day. I was just gonna say that means you have to actually mail your ballot at least, like in this case, you want to mail it at least three days before and hope the hell that it gets there on time. That's the other thing is like the way that you secure your vote in absentee is you get it postmarked by that date because you know like that's a way of knowing that you satisfied that obligation because you don't have any control with what time it gets there after that Mm -hmm. even if you mailed it a week before it may get lost in the mail yeah that's so upsetting ridiculous well i i've actually saved probably in my opinion i think the worst for last which this is this should scare people in general, uh, like I think all around the country, but especially in Alabama and Georgia, where this is precedent now. So you may recall in 2018, Florida voters approved a state constitutional amendment that restored voting rights to people with felony convictions. That was a big deal uh, because it's Florida and, and in many states, if you have a felony, you lose your right to vote. And that was a very progressive ballot initiative that passed. And I think it passed by a pretty decent margin. So the state legislature didn't like this. They passed a law in 2019 saying that those individuals had to pay all fines, court costs, and fees before they can register to vote. So all of those things associated with their criminal convictions before they could get their voting right back. So they weren't saying they weren't invalidating it on its face, but very much effectively because a lot of people with felony convictions are lower income and a lot of them have those fines that they don't have the money up front to pay for. Maybe they'll pay for it over time, but that disenfranchises them until they do. And this these Federalist Society judges at the 11th Circuit overturned a district court ruling that said this law was unconstitutional, this law that the legislature passed about the fines was unconstitutional. Um, And this effectively takes away that voting right that was given to people with felony convictions. I, you know, I remember hearing about this and I, that it makes me really, really angry that this happened because I remember I was working in Florida during that election and I remember just how hard people were fighting for this and how much they believed in what they were doing and how happy that so many people were because this people who had paid their debt to society um had had the ability now to to vote again and the fact that this is basically a poll tax which is illegal yeah is incredibly cruel and 
I, I remember the sadness that kind of came over a lot of the folks who worked so hard on that campaign. Um, but yeah, this, in my opinion, this is a poll tax. I, it absolutely is. It absolutely is. Like it, the regular person, or let me, let me rephrase that, say the person who doesn't have a felony conviction, they don't have to pay any fines like that. Like if you have an existing debt, you don't have to have it paid in order to go vote or like a parking ticket. Exactly. Like, you can still vote. It doesn't consist. It's not consistent. And it doesn't make sense. And I think that they were like, when we say that people who've paid their debt to society should be able to vote, they were like, well, they haven't paid their debt to society. Well, just like you said, there are tons of people who have pending litigation or if you have court costs from a misdemeanor or like this is just targeting a, a status of people that is largely poor, dis, dis, um, disproportionately minority, just an extra way to twist the knife, in my opinion. Yeah, it's horrible. And so a little bit more about this before we go into like what the impact is, is like, so the dissenting judge in that case, it basically argued that um, the record developed at trial made it clear that the state government had no interest in actually collecting those fines so that people could vote. Because he said that demonstrated a staggering inability to administer its requirement and um, and that Florida cannot tell people with felony convictions the great majority of whom are indigent, are, are indigent, meaning are are low income, how much they owe, and has not completed a single screening. So they they don't even have the information. So it's just a, it's a scare tactic. If places like Georgia and Alabama were to do the same, the state government could do the exact same, and I very much imagine that they would. Yeah. Wow, that is so so sad. Yes, it is. It's it's horrible, but I'm I'm glad that we're talking about this because people need to be aware that these judges matter. Um, so I wanted to switch gears a little bit to a different one. This is actually in the Sixth Circuit, so Ohio, Kentucky, Tennessee, Michigan. This is less impacting like broader states, but just like Ohio in general. So for people who live in Ohio, there's been a lot of legal challenges to the new partisan redistricted maps, Ohio's gerrymandered maps. And so I have not been following this super closely, but what I realized here when reading through this is that Trump appointed judges basically made it so that these like Republican aligned maps would stay in place. So what what happened was like like Ohio's GOP came up with these partisan maps. Lots of legal challenges ensued. I won't go into the background, but it, it it got challenged. Um, the Ohio Supreme Court ruled that the new legislative maps were unconstitutional and gerrymandered. Um, and so this went to a federal court, uh, the Sixth Circuit, a Trump-appointed Federalist judge named Amul Thapar, I think. Uh, as, and he joined a Western District of Kentucky Trump-appointed Federal Circuit judge uh, in basically throwing out the ruling of the Ohio Supreme Court, so much for federalism, um, which I know that it happens, legal, whatever, but still just wanted to get that crack in there. They threw out that ruling and sided with the GOP and they said their reasoning was, we must presume that state actors will work together to reach homegrown solutions. And if they fail, then it is up to voters to punish them if they so choose. What? 
What? So the the oh, there's so many things wrong with that statement. Um. Oh yeah, go off. Go. First off. of all, presuming state actors will work together to reach quote homegrown solutions that is bonkers. Um, that Hilarious. is a a presumption Hilarious. that is not based in fact. It's it's not based in reality. It's a fantasy. So there's that. And then if they fail, then it's up to the voters to punish them. Like we just said that regular people, regular voters cannot like nobody can understand uh, an Ohio Supreme Court decision that was overturned by the district court or the circuit court and like it's back and forth and back and forth and then you have to like get to the final decision and understand it to be able to then start a campaign like this is why we place these people in positions of trust that is that is why they are confirmed by the senate and the fact that they are saying well, they're throwing their hands up saying, well, it's up to the voters to to punish these people if they so choose is just an abdication of their duty. Oh, it makes me so mad. Wow. Well, and the wild part is, it's like, oh, it's up to the voters to punish them for these gerrymandered maps where they drew them in order to choose their own voters. Exactly. Oh, yeah, that's unique. Yes, yes. <laughs> it's like you can't make this up with how stupid it is. Yeah, and it's so. This is there's like, this is like coordination. Jesus. It might as well be. I mean, if it's not explicitly, it is implicitly. Yeah. Wow. This one. <sighs> this one really got me. Oh my god, it makes me so mad. Yeah. So that's Ohio. I mean, I don't know that that precedent would extend necessary precedent's weird i'm not trying to say that all this stuff is precedent i'm saying that like if these judges are willing to do this about certain things like that can extend to other states yeah and just because it it impacts just one state doesn't mean that those people don't deserve to to know this and to to understand that they are being impacted so that's one of the reasons we really wanted to highlight even some that are narrowly focused like this one yes well this next one I think is going to get your goat because it got mine. Oh boy! So this happens to do with the discrimination, particularly uh, with people with disabilities. This happened. Classic. 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 You know, all those disabled people the hits. just wanting all this <laughs> shit. You know, no, it's <laughs> literally laying the hits here. Like this is Eleventh Circuit against Alabama, Georgia. Um, same judge in the other cases ruled that. So this has happened. A grocery store chain uh, was accused of violating the Americans with Disabilities Act by making some of their drug refills and other services available only through its website, which was not accessible uh, to the visually impaired. And there are hundreds of commercially available, there's hundreds of commercial websites that are uh, accessible to the visually impaired. They can use screen readers and stuff like that to where somebody who can't see or can't see well um, is able to have it read to them what's on the website. Well, this was not compatible for that. They got sued. I think it was, um, uh, I don't know, Winn-Dixie or something. I'm not sure. Um, so they got sued. The judge ruled that the store chain didn't violate the Americans with Disabilities Act by not making it accessible. And I'm just, I want, I want your visceral reaction to this explanation. Um, and it gets a little wordy because it's a little legalese, but title they said title three of the ada bans discrimination with respect to public accommodations on the basis of a disability 
The judge ruled the website wasn't a public accommodation and the that the inaccessibility was not an quote-unquote intangible barrier that denied the person equal access because it didn't prevent them from shopping at the physical store. What the fuck? <laughs> Which, first of all, I believe that they made some of those repo services available only through its website, but even if not, it's like, first of all, the reason why you have that stuff through a website is so you don't have to go to the store, and right. some people can't. Right, That is yes, and uh, like... The whole point is so that you don't have to go into the store. I, I I feel like making things available online is typically like a great accommodation for people with disabilities. Like absolutely. Like me, I really really like it when I can get things mail delivered to me, and I don't have to make an extra trip out because that you know if, there, if we have any spoonies in the audience, that's an extra spoon that I don't have to use. Um, to spoonies is that a thing? Yeah. So it's like how many? Basically, it's like the battery that you have for the day, and like every activity that you do, it costs you a spoon, and you only have so many for the day and oh. we can we can link the story in the show notes i can send you the story that that explains a spoonie um but it's basically it's a it's a metaphor for how does disabled people have to make calculations for everything in their life because everything they do costs them so gotcha. like i only have a set amount of energy for the day i can't i can't go over that when i'm out of energy for that day i'm done because I can't, I physically can't keep going. So it's like, that's something like in this accommodation would be great for me. I have my medications mail delivered from not this place, obviously, but like I have them mail delivered, but this is just like an accommodation that is likely supposed to be for people with disabilities or at least benefit them in some way. Wow. This one makes me really mad. You're right. It, it, it I got me. If I was smiling and laughing, it wasn't because I was being insensitive. I literally thought you meant like kind of like a sneakerhead is someone who is like obsessed and collects shoes. And I thought you meant like a spoonie was somebody who literally like collected different types of spoons and like was just really into cutlery. <laughs> no. Okay. I'm so much, makes so much more sense to me now. I'm really you. sorry that I used like a deep cut for disabled people. Um, you don't need to apologize. I actually, I actually think we'll probably get a couple of comments on it being like, I was foodie too. <laughs> And we have one person be like, I'm actually like a spoon head, meaning like I've got a wall of spoons that I collect. Yeah, here's like a short. It's people who live with chronic pain and subscribe to spoon theory may refer to themselves as spoonies, but the term isn't limited to any one medical condition. Um, the spoon theory is a self-pacing strategy that emphasizes the need for chronic pain patients to work to a certain quota. Oh, well, that makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah, I like that's helpful and helpful visualization. Yeah. Interesting. I had not heard that before. See, we learned something new on this show. Well, so this is, okay, first of all, this is an extremely big problem because this, this like, this is actually a ruling where they said that this was not an intangible barrier, which is explicitly mentioned in the ADA. So mm -hmm. this could be used to apply to a lot of other instances where public accommodation for something like that happens or, or where... This was like a driver's license, right. or like a you know, like a DMV or some kind of actual government thing where you had to go to a website to get it. It allows people to cut corners, like it allows companies to cut corners. And like, I don't know how hard it is to integrate the ability to have like screen reading and stuff done on a website. I can't 
imagine it's that difficult, but it's probably an added expense or something. And so this is like, it just, it's, you talk to anyone who is impacted by the ADA and they will tell you that it is imperfect and it lacks teeth already. And this is just chipping away at that more because let me just ask this, Callie, like if you're having trouble reading a website, do you think that you might also have trouble driving a car to that store? Possibly. Yeah. (laughs) Right. (sighs) Yeah. It's, it's, the layers of just like not actually making any sense as you peel them back, just get more and more and more. This this is an onion of bullshit. Yes. Peel it back, you find more. And I'm I don't like onions anyway, so ugh. Ugh. My I'm already tearing up. This next one, I've got two more for you. I know. We've been walking down this road. No, no. I I am I'm I'm here well, for buckle it. Buckle up, listeners, because if you're not, I'm sorry. Uh, I've also seen it. Was it Hubble traipsing around in the back? Yes, Hubble and Jordy have been hanging out. Um, and Frankie is—he's uh, a little restless, but we're hanging in there. Everybody know if you're not watching on YouTube, you need to because there's so many <laughs> living things in the background of Callie's video. We've got—it looks like maybe a monstera back there, potentially. Yes. Um, some other mm-hmm. like like viney plants going on and you got two Mm -hmm. cats and a dog it's just all all happiness yes my um my future in-laws call this the farm well that's silly (laughs) well we're getting another cat i'll have to tell you about that later but we're we're getting a third cat and frankie's probably our only dog uh because he's a lot of work but he's a lot of love we i i am an animal person so we only deal with animal people on this show yeah. Mm-hmm. So, um, sadly, we'll have to go back to a, a, a more bleak topic than animals. Worker protections. Cali, um, unions, very important. We recently talked yeah, about them. Yeah. Um, this is your soapbox. I'm ready for you to like really hit this one hard. I've got so much soap that it's filling up the laundry room right now. Well, I mean, so first of all, you know this, like union just in general have have seen a huge resurgence especially since the pandemic right like yeah i mean in a great way yeah amazing way because unions were had been on the decline i think for a while and particularly since their height and so this recent resurgence has been great i mean starbucks you look at how many like hundreds of stores there you look at i mean I'm totally like my mind is blown up. I think some Apple places too, right? Yes. Yeah. The first Apple, uh, first union store and, and Apple company history happened in Towson, Maryland, not too far up the road from me. Yeah. Um, A lot of bravery, I think on the part of so many workers across the country um, to fight for, to fight for really what they have deserved for a long time. Absolutely. And we hats off to all of them, uh, especially a special shout out to the, the Starbucks in Boone, North Carolina, um, who unionized about a month or so ago. Well, as you can imagine, companies are doing everything that they can to shut this down. I mean, if you look like every day, there's like a new clip from a like a shareholders meeting or something at Starbucks or Howard Schultz is going in on unions and saying how oh, yeah. terrible they are for their culture. So they always say the culture, which, by the way, has never been true. Never. Unionizing is is good. Just just so that we can stand firmly in that Howard Schultz is wrong. Yeah, Howard Schultz is also wrong. He's also a billionaire. Um, and so, uh, you know, he stands to lose some of that billion dollars. So sad. We'll play the smallest violin for him later. 
and so employers are getting way more hostile and openly hostile about employees unionizing, which, according to the National Labor Relations Act, and if I remember correctly, Section 7 and 8, it is unlawful to interfere with employees' rights to bargain and organize in the workplace. That includes threatening employees with adverse consequences. And so in many cases, expressing hostility towards unionizing can interfere with that and threaten adverse consequences. And so... This ruling came down in the Third Circuit, so this is all of Pennsylvania, which is a historically very union state, very pro-union. We love that. Uh, a Bush-appointed Federalist judge, so not a Trump one, a George W. Bush-appointed Federalist judge named Thomas Hardiman ruled against the employees, the workers, and the National Labor Relations Board, which if you don't know what that is, the NLRB is the independent agency that's tasked with upholding labor law with respect to collective bargaining and unfair labor practices. Uh, just this past month, in fact, this is very recent, so hot off the presses here. Um, this was this is actually quite interesting because uh, this was the publisher of the Federalist. So the Federalist is a conservative now online used to be print publication magazine, um, and I guess that there was some employees that had been talking about potentially forming a union. Maybe they even weren't talking about it, but just the idea came up. The publisher tweeted that. He'd, quote, send employees back to the salt mine if they tried to unionize. Oh, my God. What a... <laughs> oh, my God. <sighs> Talk about the bourgeoisie. Right? Yeah, and it's kind of ironic because The Federalist is, you know, historically a very, very conservative publication. But, of course, we still support their employees' right to unionize. Every worker in this country, regardless of where you work, should be able to unionize and organize in their workplace. And we don't care even if we disagree with what they write. We absolutely do. Uh, so this is clearly like, if, like you know, it's it's obviously was, was maybe said with a little bit of a tone of jest, but that doesn't matter because it's clear that the publisher, the, the head of Federalist, is hostile towards unions. And so the judge argued that Twitter... Quote, encouraged users to express opinions in exaggerated or sarcastic terms. Uh, and that because of that, uh, that this was not considered like like a hostility that would go against the National Labor Relations Act. Do they know that like most news is broken on Twitter? Like, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, seriously. And it doesn't matter if that's what a lot of people use it for. It, like, and it doesn't matter that that even he may have even tried to claim he was being sarcastic. It's clear that there is a hostility towards unions, and that that was not going to be welcomed or encouraged or even supported at this. Right at at the very least, it has a chilling. Absolutely, because like, first of all, look, he can argue that he's being sarcastic, but sent back to the salt mines, any employee could interpret that as I might get fired. Yeah. I think it's fair to assume that, yeah. Absolutely. And they're going to argue, oh, I was just joking, and this, why take this seriously? It's Twitter. If I'm an employee at that place, I'm worried that if I try to unionize, I'll get fired. Yeah, yeah, that. absolutely. Well, and, and also just the fact that he felt comfortable enough saying it in such a public way. Imagine what this man says in private. And imagine, like, knowing that, oh, this is what they feel comfortable joking about. That's that's the thing, is that we know that there are tons of politicians and, and employers and things like that who they will say these things out loud in the public sphere, but 
in private are even worse, are far worse and more dangerous. And so I think that that's what you can read from this is that, wow, he's willing to joke about this online, even if it is sarcastic, he really means it. Like that's that's as reasonable of a thing to understand it as as encourages users to express exaggerated or sarcastic terms. Even if that's not correct, it's just as reasonable. I would also argue, and I think this maybe depends on the the wording of the National Labor Relations Act, but I would argue that even even if he intended to be sarcastic, employees could easily not interpret it like that and can interpret it as a threat to them unionizing. And like that's that's a problem. Um, and you might think like you know, okay, this is the the um, the Federalist. It's you know, it's an online publication. I'm not actually sure why it was in the Third Circuit because I think they're based out of D.C. But either way, like this is this is Third Circuit precedent for Pennsylvania. Why does this matter for Appalachia, particularly in in Pennsylvania, a significant chunk of the region? It's alarming because it gives employers a lot of leeway to make threats against unionization so long as it's on Twitter. Boom. Yeah, look, I and I know that, that rulings are more complicated than this, but look, the way the judge interpreted this, where he claimed that Twitter was a place that encourages sarcastic comments, well, if I'm a pl- an employer looking at this, I'm thinking, great, so I can threaten my employees all I want as long as I do it on Twitter. Because then they can just argue, oh, well, it was sarcasm, it calls it Twitter bird app. <laughs> no, it's okay. I, I think you're exactly right. So I do have one more. Uh, to go through, and this is this one. I feel I see the, I see the heading. <laughs> I feel it in my bones. It's just gonna make me really mad. There is a clear contempt for people who have been in prison or who have violated the law by these judges. Would you agree? I absolutely agree. Sorry, I'm muting myself so that you guys don't have to hear Frankie talking. <laughs> It's just it's fucking adorable. So I just love watching it. It's so cute. I, every now and then, he's like a. I was mentioning this earlier. He's like a porpoise coming out of the water because he's just like short enough to not always be within view of the camera. But every now and then, you just see his head kind of come up. It's like whale it's watching, adorable. but it's Frank. It is. Yeah, I mean, from the comfort of your own home. So this has to do with an inhumane treatment of people in prison. So this was also in the Third Circuit of Pennsylvania. Trump appointed Third Circuit Federal Society Judge Paul Mady, who agreed with the last decision we talked about, affirmed a dismissal of a lawsuit against a federal prison guard by a prisoner um, who... Let me actually just restart that. So a Trump-appointed Third Circuit Federal Society judge named Paul Mady agreed with the dismissal of a lawsuit against a federal prison guard who ordered inhumane confinement of a prisoner. Now, let me just lay the foundation here the third circuit already recognized the treatment in question as cruel and unusual punishment so i want to give background to what happened because this is this is a little bit of detail i need the background i i I need to be sufficiently hot-headed for this sufficiently enraged right here yes yes i'm letting it flow through me let it flow let the anger flow through your veins emperor palpatine sorry that was really nerdy that was great that was where i was going i just didn't know i was like paraphrasing the line because i couldn't quite remember it let the anger flow through you skywalker i don't (laughs) 
<laughs> that was good. I am going to get canceled by the real Star Wars fans out there who are going to be absolutely fucking disgusted by my interpretation of that. Sorry, y'all. And sorry if it's not Palpatine. I think, I think so. It is, I'm pretty though. sure. So this is the factual background. It's a little bit of detail, but it's very important to this. So... After a medical assistant filed what turned out to be an unfounded complaint against Anthony Mamana, the prisoner, we'll call him Anthony, uh, a guard ordered Anthony to be placed in the quote-unquote yellow room and given quote-unquote yellow treatment. The yellow room is a cold, solitary confinement cell that had extra bright lights and yellow walls that reflect and intensify that light. So it's purposely set up to be as visually distressing as possible. A prisoner like Anthony, given the yellow room treatment, means to be stripped of their standard uniform and forced to wear a see-through thin alternative. They're given no blankets or sheets, and in his case, no pillow, washcloth, towels, toothpaste, toothbrush, or toilet paper, and the lights are kept on for 24 hours a day. Anthony was kept in the cold yellow room for four days despite requests for medical treatment because he felt ill. The requests were ignored, and guards instead chided and mocked him all night. And remember, this was done in response to a complaint that turned out to be unfounded. So not only was this cruel and unusual punishment, period, but it it was done so on a complaint that ended up being... False or or not valid. So this is just like the worst case of bullying and ex- exploitation of your system of power. Absolutely, absolutely. So basically, this this um this had to this lawsuit had to do with with putting liability on that particular guard. And so there's a lot that goes into that. I don't want to get into all the legal mumbo jumbo, but but this lawsuit was filed by the prisoner. And now the details here get a little thick, but I do really believe that this is important. So the court did say that he could state a claim under the Eighth Amendment, which is barring cruel and unusual punishment, right? So he said, you know, we have established this was cruel and unusual. They sent it back to lower court. Lower court said that that uh, Anthony could not sue the federal guards under a certain Supreme Court principle that they were using uh, that allows people to sue federal officials for depriving them of constitutional rights under some circumstances, and the circuit court agreed. And this Trump-appointed Federalist Society judge claimed that although they did establish that there's a failure to provide adequate medical treatment and to provide protection from prisoner violence, Anthony's claim concerned a new context— because it concerned his mistreatment in the yellow room. And they maintained that that uh, the court should not expand this previous Supreme Court precedents to apply to this case because Congress's omission of a damages remedy and the law that they're using indicates that Congress chose not to extend the remedy for failure to provide medical treatment in cases involving prisoner mistreatment. So let me break that down for you. What this means is that they didn't want to establish new precedent. That's the long and short of this. There's a lot of details that go into this. The attorney for Anthony was relying on Supreme Court precedents and a principle established for this type of case. They were relying on the Prison Litigation Reform Act, which was an act passed by Congress. And basically what the court here said, what these Federalist Society judges in Appalachia said, is that 
They don't want to make new precedents because this yellow room treatment is a new context, and they think that Congress did not really write this law to extend to this. Isn't it like, isn't it the whole job of the courts to create new precedent and to address new issues in in, le- in legalities that like, that's their whole job is to... Not if you are a textualist. I guess, <laughs> I guess. Jeez. They, they chose to be like, oh, well, based on the writing of this, they didn't want it to extend to something like the Yellow Room, which is new context. And we don't have precedent for that, even though it's cruel and unusual punishment. We don't want this to go So the forward. Yellow Room is still used? I'm I guess. I, I would assume so. Jesus. This is, very, this is just sad. It's really, it's sad. It's disturbing that this is happening. Wow. Um... I I I feel deeply for Mr. Mamana. This is awful. It's terrible. And this is like this is just one of the cases we know about. Um it doesn't matter what this person did in order to be incarcerated. Nobody should be subjected to that kind of treatment and have their rights stripped away because that that is we talk about rights all the time, the bill of rights. Eighth Amendment seldom talked about. Very important right against cruel and unusual punishment. That was cruel and that was unusual. There's nothing, no doubt in my mind about that. And this person's rights were stripped away from them. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, these, these folks are also, and excuse me if this makes some people angry, but the Federalist Society is unquestionably a Christian organization. We talked about that last week that uh, Leonard Leo is unapologetically Catholic and he's driven by by that. And so are many of the judges. Um, I, as a Christian myself, cannot fathom deciding something like this in favor of this type of treatment of another human being. It is the most unchristian thing I've ever heard. Uh, this is cruel. I mean, I, we've just established that it's cruel and unusual, but wow, I I can't imagine. I, ca- I can't imagine not seeing repercussions for these guards. Now they're just enabled and empowered and emboldened. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I'm, w- I'm with you on that, and I think that's a really important point. And it's something that I think makes me so angry about the way that these people choose choose to interpret the law, which is devoid of context, is devoid of nuance. Except for when it benefits them. Exactly. Exactly. And it presumes that, that these lawmakers knew exactly what they were doing at the time that this was written. And it's just it's just ridiculous, and this hurts so many people. We've we we talked about this and how it hurts Appalachia, and we wanted to put a point on like how these will will harm you if you live there. And this is just another example, and it's very very distressing. Yeah, to to really just put a a, a bow on the end of this. Um, these judges are deciding real cases for real people. And we wanted to make that tangible for you, um, that these aren't just judges that we hear about in the news every now and then when they're confirmed as bad judges. These judges go on to be appointed for a life making decisions like this. These judges aren't gone. This is the point. These judges, maybe um, Lagoa, 
all of these judges that we've talked about are still there. They're still deciding cases for you, for your families, for your communities. And we need to take this very seriously and understand that activism does not confine itself to legislators. It doesn't confine itself to presidents or members of Congress. We have to be aware um, of, of what is going on on a larger scale in the judiciary because there are judicial activists that are that are making these decisions every day and who are denying appeals and who are ensuring that people who are nonviolent drug offenders stay in jail. You know, these are things that are that are happening. So I I Chuck, thank you so much for all of your research on this. This has been really enlightening for me too. And I think um I think all of our listeners are gonna are gonna think the same. Yeah, I hope so. And you know, in in the case of Paul Mady, he's fifty one years old, so he's gonna be on the bench for a long time. Long time. <sighs> well, we uh Let's put a button on that for now. I think that was that was a helpful deep dive in there. And we're going to forego Under the Radar in Appalachia because we know this has been a meaty, meaty episode this week. But we do want to reiterate that the subject we talked about last week, we still want you to be sending in those letters calling your members' offices about the Black Lung Disability Trust Fund. We want to make sure that you guys are still doing that. I know a lot of you have already used the uh, link in the show notes to send out letters, but if you haven't already, please, please, please check that out. Thank you to Callie for putting that together through A4A. And thank you all for listening. And at the end of this show, like we did last week, we want to share a moment of queer joy that you shared with us. And if you want to share that, we're going to do it all throughout Pride Month. We still have a little bit left, so shoot it to us in a voice memo or an audio file to info at appodlatchet.com, and we'll share it on the show. Hi, my name is Newt Shadokati, and I grew up all over the region, but right now I'm from Nashville, Tennessee. One of my passions is songwriting, and I used to really hate country music, even though I grew up with it because the industry has a really long history of homophobia and sexism. But ever since I came out as a non-binary lesbian, I've found so much joy in reclaiming that part of who I am and sort of telling my own three chords and the truth. It's also introduced me to artists like Brandi Carlisle and Katie Lang, and I feel so happy to know I'm a part of a big family of, you know, yeehaw lesbians. So that's my joy. 